14 through 21. Last week I told you that this week would probably be the last week in our uh, series of sermons through the uh, 12th chapter of the book of Romans. Actually, it looks like next week will be the last week. So this week is not the last week that last week I said would, it would be this week. But next week will be last week, and I'm telling you this week. All right, so that's what's going on. I, I was just, we were going to go over uh, verses 15 and 16, and uh, as we got into it during the week, it just seemed as though uh, that needed to be divided up a little bit. So uh, this morning we'll be looking primarily at verse 15. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, I'm going to confess and tell you that uh, for most of my life, uh, having read the verse, I sort of took it in a general context. In general, weep with those who weep. In general, uh, weep with, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, but if you look at the context of it, and, and some people point this out, uh, that injunction to rejoice and to weep uh, with folks uh, comes in, in that paragraph that has to do with dealing with those who persecute us. Verse 14, it says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, then rejoice and weep. And then in verse 17, it goes back into talking about uh, dealing with persecutors. Don't repay evil for evil. Do what is honorable. Uh, live peaceably. Don't avenge yourself. Uh, give to, uh, to the need of your enemies. Um, and so if the, the general theme of this entire paragraph of Scripture is dealing with those who are out to get us, with, with our persecutors, if you will, then this injunction, this command to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, really gets a, a, um, a more severe application. It's even harder because it's talking about what do you do with folks who are out to get you? And Paul says, well, if they are rejoicing, then you need to rejoice. And if they are weeping, you need to weep. In other words, you need to recognize uh, that they're going through the journey of humanity and things are happening in their lives and you need to uh, have that attitude of compassion and sympathy and empathy uh, with them and all those kinds of things. And so uh, that becomes a very hard verse to apply um, and I leave it to you to apply it to your life in that way. Now, obviously, I think it's just obvious that there uh, is a little bit of a caveat that has to be put on this verse uh, in the sense that God never tells us to rejoice at sin and wrongdoing. If someone is doing something contrary to the will of God, that is not a reason to rejoice. Now, if, a, if a person comes up to you and they say, well, I just robbed a bank and wow, did it go well. Man, walked in the door, they let me in, they didn't know who I was, I took the money, they had no idea what was going on, didn't leave any fingerprints, came out, the, the getaway car was there, didn't get a ticket while it was parked next to a hydrant, we got away, they don't know who we are, they don't know where we are, we got all this kinds of money, they forgot to put the little dive bomb in there, we, this is the greatest bank robbery I ever had, I am so happy. You don't need to rejoice, <laughs> especially because it was probably my bank. We don't rejoice when evil is being done. 
When Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice, obviously the sinner has got to be the will of God and the grace and the sovereignty of God. And so to rejoice means when we see God's blessings coming into a person's life, when they are experiencing the things that God has ordained should bring joy and happiness and they are are just hitting one of those higher points in life where uh, things are are, are going well, then, then rejoice and be happy with them. But you don't rejoice with the robber who just robbed my bank. Um, we don't do that. Um, and so that, that's the emphasis. And if you want sort of the, the key to understanding the verse, it is this, that the focus of the verse really is not on the other person. Right? That's not the primary focus. We are to be concerned about the other person and what they're going through and things like that. But that's not the focus. They're not defining the situation. And the focus isn't on us. We are not defining the situation. Rather, the focus is on God, and he is the one who defines the situation. His will, his glory, his righteousness, his holiness, uh, all those things that are part of the character and the nature of God, these are the things that define every human relationship and every human situation. And so when we read that verse and it talks about uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, it has to do with according to the will of God and, and defined by and guided by who God is and what God is doing in life. If someone is, is uh, just so far out of the will of God that they're being really, really happy that they're doing really, really bad stuff, it's not talking about rejoice with that person, but rather rejoice when you see the hand of God at work in the life of another. And weep when someone is going through those seasons of life that bring grief and sorrow that might be a loss, um, you know, of of, of some kind, but just um, extend that sympathy and weep with those who weep. So that's that's sort of the, the, the major context. That's the major interpretation of the Scripture. It really has to do with even with those who are out to get you, rejoice when you see blessings from God coming to them and weep when you see them going through hard times that the, that the human journey will, will bring about. That, that's the primary application. Now, a little bit later on in the service when we come to our time in the Word, um, I want for us to take it in, in, in a more uh, general sense to, to extract the basic principle of weeping and rejoicing with those as God's plan and will is being worked out in their life. So we'll look at it from that angle a little bit later on. But I wanted you to have sort of the, the primary focus of, of what the verse is about in its context. So let's uh, read this paragraph together. And, uh, well, you listen, I'll read uh, as we look at it. Okay, verse 14. And bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, we're so thankful that you listened to us. Even though you already know the story we're going to tell,
and the outcome that is ordained. Even though you already know our heartaches and the causes and the symptoms and the reality of it better than we do. Father, I thank and praise you that you listen to us as our prayers drone on and miss the point and ask for the wrong things. I thank you, Father, that you listen to us when we come before you and the hurt and the wound is so bad that we don't even have words. And still you listen to our hearts. Father, I thank you that you are a God who listens to us in grace and love and mercy. And I thank you, Father, because so often, indeed, we do not even know how to pray and what to pray. Father, I thank you for listening to us with that divine kind of grace. And I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith that we too would listen, that we would listen to others, that we would listen as you have listened to us. And thereby, we would make known to all those around us the depth and the magnitude of your compassion for us and for them. And Father, that you would be glorified as you teach us the art of listening. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. ...to enjoy epic fails. Um, you probably are aware of, of the YouTube uh, uh, website. You can go there and type in epic fail and then choose your topic. Uh, I like to type in epic fail baseball blunders and watch all the errors that are made because after all, I wouldn't make an error like that. You know, and it's just sort of entertaining. But you can, you can get all, there, there's, even type in church softball. And it won't be entire church softball, but you'll see softball players doing some pretty nutty things. And as you know, church softball was invented by the devil to punish us, and, um, and he's winning uh, in that regard. But, uh, but you watch these epic fails, people failing in roller skating, people failing in, in uh, all kinds of pursuits in backyard and diving into the pool and slipping and falling and smashing their face in. Isn't that funny? And uh, so, and, you know, it's just great epic fails. Um, oh, and, the, and it's really good to type in epic fails business. And you get to see the great business decisions that nobody in their right mind would make, like the Edsel, New Coke, you know, when Netflix abandoned their, their business plan. Well, anyway, but, you know, all these epic fails. And we look at that, and it's kind of entertaining to watch other people fail. We get a certain kind of joy out of their pain. Now, this is very human. You don't have to admit to it because we know it's there anyway. Psychologists study this. They try to figure out why it happens. It has something to do with uh, if it's happening to you, it's not happening to me. You know, there's only one in a bazillion chance that anybody was that dumb to do what you just did, and uh, maybe I'm off the hook now because I'm not doing that kind of thing. So, um, and, but psychologists study that because it's so much a part of the human nature. Um, as usual, the Germans came up with a word for it, schadenfreude. Uh, schadenfreude uh, literally means pain joy. It is the joy you get at somebody else's pain. And so um, there's this real sense of schadenfreude um, that goes through the human condition. When we rejoice at the misfortune of others, um, and for some reason that makes us happy. And the other side of that, of course, is being resentful and refusing to rejoice at the welfare and the well-being of others. We just don't want them to be that happy. 
Uh, evidently, if something good happens to them, there's only a certain number of good blessings that can go on in life. And if they're being blessed, then, then I'm, I'm resentful of it because I'm not being blessed. And, and we get, we get uh, sort of upset about it. So we have everything backwards from what Paul talks about in Romans 12 when he says, rejoice. When you see somebody rejoicing and God is blessing them, you should be rejoicing with them and for them. And if you see somebody weeping and somebody sorrowful and something's going uh, wrong in their life, then, then you weep with them and you, you stand with them in that sorrow. In other words, you let the relationship be defined by compassion and not by your own self-interest, but by the glory of God. And, you, and you, you desire to see that worked out in the life of the other person. And so you join them. Uh, where they are. This, this is so important. It, it's so foundational that it actually winds up being the key factor in the second sin of human history. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to turn there. You may want to uh, as, whoa, as well. But in, in Genesis chapter 4, we start reading in verse 1. This, this has to do with Cain and Abel. Uh, the first sin was Adam and Eve when they refused to let God be the one who dictates good and evil. They decided they would set the agenda. Um, but this is the, the second sin of recorded human history, and, and that is when um, Cain rises up and, and, and kills, slays his brother um, Abel. And, and here's, here's how it happens. Though. It says now in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, hi Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So keep that in mind. You've got two brothers, Cain and Abel. And let's keep it straight. Now, Abel is taking care of the livestock and Cain is out working the fields and planting and plowing and doing all that kind of stuff I don't understand. So two brothers on two different sides of the farm. Now, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's all. He just brought an offering. Good thing to do. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, a lot of commentators point out that what happens here is that Cain brings an offering. Here, God, here's your offering. Okay. And Abel brings the offering and says, here, God, is the very first, the very best Here's the fat of the produce, and thereby the scripture endorses the idea that being fat is better. You got, no, you got to get these points where you can. But anyway, but he brings the fat of, of, of the herds, you know, and, the, and, and, and so forth. So, so Abel is bringing like a really, really good offering. He's invested in the best he has. Uh, Cain basically has brought an offering. You know, here, here Lord, have, have, have some grain or something, a piece of bread. Where are we? Okay, and uh, at the end of verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. I don't know what that looked like. Uh, I don't know if that was, uh, you know, the little blue light with the tinkly, glittery things coming down and the Charlton Heston voice, a hey, great offering, great offering. Um, but somehow it was evident. It was evident that God really liked this offering, and, and, and uh, Abel was, was blessed by it, and there was sort of a joy in his life, and it, you know, it was like a really good experience. So um, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Didn't say he hated it, didn't say he rejected it, just said, yeah, okay, you brought it with an attitude, and I'm accepting it with the same attitude, you know, it's just something we do. So obviously, Abel is being blessed. Cain is not being blessed. So 
into verse 5. Cain was very angry and his face fell. You can just see what he's thinking to himself. I mean, if, if I'm playing this part, it's, it's sort of like, well, I didn't know you wanted the first fruits. I could have done first fruits. It's okay, fine, you brought the fat of the, of the, of the herd and all that. Did you know that, fr- that, that grain doesn't have fat? You know, how am I supposed to bring fat? And all, all I've got is, you know, this stuff. You know, that kind of thing, making those kinds of excuses. But he was very angry with it. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? By the way, God knew full well. He's trying to get Cain to realize it. Then why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now, here's what I think that means. He's saying, Cain, you're in a moment of crisis right now. Your brother is being blessed, and you're seeing that everything's going well for him, and it's not going so much for you, and you're envious, and you're uh, burning with jealousy, and you're resentful, and you've got a real crisis on your hand because you're liable to bleed that attitude over into sin if you don't watch it, if you're not very careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It is desirous to have you. Sin wants to win the victory, and you've got to overcome it. Don't give in to that sin, Cain. And it was all generated by the fact that he couldn't rejoice with his brother. He was resentful of his brother. Okay. So in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And by the way, he didn't say, great offering, glad for you. Now, I'm really pleased to see God blessing you. No, he spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See, that inability to rejoice with his brother who was rejoicing led to jealousy and resentment, which led to a hatred, which led to murder. And sin won the victory because he thought this this whole thing was about him and his feelings and how unfair and unjust life was. And he couldn't rejoice with his brother. The Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And, and here's how you know that Cain was still a preschooler. He said, I don't know. You ever talk to a preschooler? You know, what happened? I don't know. Where is your brother? I don't know. Am I supposed to? <laughs> That's basically what he said. He, you know, by the way, we're all nothing but preschoolers who got bigger. We didn't grow up. We just got bigger. That, that's all there. But he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And so Cain slipped into murder because he could not rejoice with his brother's blessings. That's how important this is. And whether it's that side of the equation or the schadenfreude side of the equation, we need to enter into our relationships where we are set free by the grace of God to really appreciate the good blessings coming to those who oppose us that come to people around us and that we can actually enter in empathetically. Sympathy is what you feel for someone from a distance. Empathy is what you feel for someone from the inside. That's the difference of the two words. But to be empathetic with those who are suffering and to weep with those who weep. So let's look at that verse back in, in Romans 12. And we'll take it in, in two steps. We first start off with rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and I got to think about, you know, well, where do we find an occasion where Jesus rejoiced because somebody else was rejoicing? And it turns out there is one. Uh, it's, it's found in Luke chapter 10. I'll, I'll, I'll read the verses for you in, in, in a moment. But uh, 
uh, in, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out 72 of his followers, 72 of his disciples, and he sent, sent them to the uh, surrounding villages and told them to preach the coming of the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to all those things that manifest the power of God's kingdom coming into the, the midst of that village. And the, they're, they're basically going out and preparing the territory so that when Jesus gets there, he can, can have a preaching and teaching uh, ministry that will manifest uh, the, the, the kingdom of God. And people will sort of have a running start on understanding it. So he sent these 72 guys out and he said, I want you to go out and make known the power of God's kingdom in a, in a ministry. In verse 17, Luke chapter 10, it says, the 72 returned with joy. With joy they returned. He said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, these guys are pumped. This is really the greatest experience they have. Everything is clicking for them. And, and if they came back, they said, Jesus, this is really lit. I mean, everything is Gucci for us right now. Now, you don't understand, but they do. Right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Jesus said, come on back now. It's, it's time to come home. All right. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but the spirits, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, yes, yes. This is, this is just a glimpse of what, what's really going on. This joy you're experiencing, it ties you into heaven. So the, the, the disciples are pumped. They're really rejoicing. The, 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 the work of God is working out in their lives. And then in verse 20, it says, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. Did anybody notice the Trinity right there? Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit thanks the Father in heaven. And he says, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You've revealed them to little children just like my disciples. In other words, Jesus was, was, was rejoicing because of the joy they were experiencing. But his joy was found in the fact that the will and the glory of God was being worked out in, his, in the lives of his disciples. That was the key. And when Paul writes that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, the key to that is that we are rejoicing because the will of God is being worked out and the blessings of God are being extended. And God is opening up the doors of heaven and letting us get just a small peek of what it's going to be like when we're with him in perfection for all eternity. And so this rejoicing has to do with a God-focused, God-centered um, outpouring of God's blessings into somebody else's life. And we rejoice for that. You know, a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories about how we should respond when we see other people uh, coming into the kingdom and getting saved and accepting God's grace. Um, and the first story he tells is about a shepherd. You remember this? The 99, there are 99 who safely lay. You know. Am I the only one who knows that hymn? No, okay. But uh, anyway, but uh, he, he, he had 100 sheep. And one of them didn't come home. And so he's got 99 sheep in the fold, and he leaves the fold, and he goes out to find the one lost sheep. Finally, he finds the, the, finds the sheep, puts it on his shoulders. He comes back home, and he's coming into the village. He says, everybody, come, 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 everybody. And the scripture says that, that his invitation was, rejoice with me. That was it. Rejoice with me. I found this sheep. Now, here's what the human sort of, inclination to do is you know, you found your sheep congratulations you know you also lost the sheep didn't you you found the sheep great one stinking sheep 
I'm supposed to cancel my schedule and come to your party because you found a sheep? Jesus said, no, here's the attitude. Come rejoice with me. I've got joy. You come and share it with me. And then he told a story about a woman. A woman had 10 coins. Doesn't matter why. Uh, but essentially, she had 10 coins, and she lost one of them. And she turns the house upside down looking for this one lost coin. And don't you know, it's in the last place she looks. And when she finds the coin, you'll get that tomorrow. And when the coin, you know, she takes the coin, and when she finds it, she goes running around the neighborhood saying, everybody, rejoice with me. I found the coin. It used to be lost. Now it's found. I found the coin. Rejoice with me. See, Jesus is making the point that when God is working in someone else's life, we are invited to rejoice with that person. The third story he tells is the parable of the prodigal son. Almost everybody knows the story, but very quickly, a guy has two sons. The younger comes to him and says, hey, look, I want my inheritance now. The father says, fine, take it. Here's all your inheritance. The son leaves home, goes off into a far country, spends the money in riotous living, and when he's broke, he winds up feeding pigs. And as he's feeding the pigs, he says, you know, if I would just go home, I could be a servant in my father's house. And as a servant, I would eat better than I'm eating now. I'll go home, tell dad I was really wrong and all this. All I want to do is be a servant. So he gets uh, on the way home. And on his way home, his dad meets him before he gets there. And his dad just hugs him and kisses him. The, the, the son tries to apologize and dad won't let him. Dad says, no, 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 you're my son. You're not going to be a servant. You're my son. And, and come on, put on the, the, the robe and the ring and the shoes. And we're going to kill a fatted calf, a fat calf again and we're going to kill a fatted calf and we're going to have a party we're all going to what we're going to rejoice and so there's this big party going on because the will of the father has been worked out and the son has been brought home and the older brother who's out working in the fields by the way he comes in and here's this party going on and he asks somebody he says what's the party for they say ah oh, your brother's come home really yeah your brother's come home and and uh, it's really great, uh, and, and we're throwing this party, and we got the fatted calf, and, you know, it's, it's like a big deal. you got to come to the party, and the brother says, no way. I'm not going to that. It's my younger brother. You know what embarrassment he's been? You know how hard it was to answer the question every t- time somebody said, how's your brother? He's feeding pigs. That's what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, this has not been easy. So dad comes out and says, look, why, why, why can't you come in? Dad, you never threw me a party. I mean, this, this is our attitude. Somebody's experiencing the joy of the father and somebody is experiencing being welcomed home by, by the father and we don't want to join the party because after all, he never did anything for us. And we start complaining about how little we have. And the father says, son, you've got to remember something. You've always been with me. That's pretty good to start with. And secondly, everything I've got is yours because he already got his inheritance. So this is all yours. But you have to understand, we're rejoicing because my son, who used to be lost, has come home. And I'm inviting you to join in the joy of that moment. And at that moment, the the older brother has to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to rejoice because of the Father's grace or am I just going to cop an attitude? See, that's, that's how significant it is. And so when the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, it, 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 it 
first it's psychologically healthy, but, but it's mostly, it focuses our attention on who God is and what God is doing and that he's a God of grace and he's a God who blesses and he doesn't do it because we're deserving, but he just blesses because he is that kind of a God. And maybe we don't see as much blessing in our life, but that doesn't change the fact that God is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And we will rejoice when we see the blessings of God poured out on anybody around us. It's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to do because a lot of times somebody else's joy reminds us of our pain. You know, when somebody announces, we're going to have a baby, and you've been trying for so long, and no baby. When someone says, you know, my, my child has just won, you know, the top award, and your kid is giving you fits at home. My son just won the national title, the championship, and the trophy. And all your kid has is a participation certificate. And the guy in the next cubicle gets his third promotion in two years. And you've never seen a promotion at all. It's like really hard to be happy. Unless your eyes are on the gracious, loving Father in heaven. It's hard to be happy when you're focused on yourself and your own disappointments. They're real. You don't have to deny the fact that it's disappointing or that the pain is real. But that doesn't mean you can't rejoice for somebody else and just join in with the party that's going on in their lives. I mean, have you ever had a situation where something really good happened to you, but you couldn't tell somebody because they would resent it? Maybe you have. Maybe you were the person who would resent it. And somebody couldn't share their joy of their life. They had to pretend like they weren't happy. They had to pretend like they weren't being blessed. They had to pretend like God wasn't working in their life. Why? Because you were going to, going to say something that would be negative about it. Or, or you couldn't share it because somebody else would say negative. And, and it just put a damper on the whole thing. When you decide, I'm going to rejoice with the person who is rejoicing, if it's in the will of God and it's God's blessings being made manifest and his grace being made known, then I'm going to rejoice with the person who's rejoicing because I want them to experience fully what it means to be in touch with the, with, with the kindness of God in this moment of blessing in their life. Sure, it's hard. A lot of times it's hard. But a lot of times it's also what lifts us up out of our own self-centered pity party when we can see and rejoice with the joy of someone else. And so as, as uh, you go through life, what, what I want you to do this week, and, and we're not done, don't, don't get excited, but uh, what I want you to do this week is whenever somebody starts telling you about something really great going on in their life and your immediate reaction is, do I have to listen to this? I want your reaction to be, I get to listen to this. And I get to say things that will point us to the Father. You know, things like, you know, somebody tells you, you know, what a great weekend and, you know, something really great happened. You know, I just praise God for that. that. That is such a wonderful thing. You know, that just reminds me of how good life can be and how good the Father can be to us. And you just testify to the glory of God as you listen and you rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But the other side of the equation, and, and uh, uh, we'll just touch on this very quickly, is to weep with those who weep. And we find that Jesus did that. Uh, in John chapter 11, verse 35, it says Jesus wept. Uh, um, and some people say that's the shortest verse in the Bible. It is in the English Bible. But in point of fact, it has 16 letters in it, and there are 
uh, verses in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments that have only six letters. So there are other verses shorter. I just give that to you if you ever want to. Uh, uh, I was going to say win a bet, but we're Baptists and we don't uh, bet. There you go. But he says, Jesus wept. What was the situation? His friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus went and he talked to the sisters of Lazarus and um, they had just these marvelous conversations about the, the resurrection. But he went to the tomb and there at the tomb, he was surrounded by people and they were weeping and wailing and they were just overcome with grief. And Jesus did not turn to them and say, folks, it's going to be okay, you'll get over it. He didn't say that. They were in deep sorrow and he didn't say to them, why are you crying? He's in a better place. I'm going to change that in a moment, but for right now, he's in a better place. <laughs> he didn't say to them, well, you know, God just wanted Lazarus more than we did. He didn't say all those silly things that we come up with. He simply sat down and he wept with them. He knew the resurrection was coming. He knew that Lazarus was going to walk out of that tomb. He knew that that day that was filled with sorrow was going to end with joy. He knew all that. But what the people needed at the moment was somebody to sit and weep with them. And by doing so, he validated their grief. And he brought to them a sense of the sympathy and the compassion of God. Jesus wept with them, and so we're called to weep with those who weep, and, and sometimes that's not so easy. A lot of times we say, I don't, I don't know what to say to somebody. They, they've experienced a great tragedy or, or a, a loss in the family or, or a keen disappointment, and, and I don't know what to say. And what we're really saying is, I don't know how to make it right, and you don't because nobody knows how to make it right save God. But when you go to somebody and they're, and they're weeping, just go to them, and, and I'll give you this, just, just say to them this. I'm so sorry what happened. I'm so sorry what happened. And most people, not all, but most people will start to tell the story. Well, here's the last time I talked to them. Here's, here's where I was when they died. Uh, here, here's, here's what's happening in the family that's going to be coming in. And, and oh, and we just had a reunion, uh, you know, a few months ago, and we, we had a time together. And, and, and they'll just start telling the story. And here's why that's important. It's easier to put into words what happened, events, than it is to put into words what you were feeling and experiencing in the heart. A lot of times in the heart, there's no words for it. But as you get them to just talk about what's happening and you sit and you listen to what they are saying, then they are able to get their hands and their arms around that the magnitude of what they're going through. I remind you that in the Hebrew language, that the word for word in Hebrew, dabar, uh, that that is also the same word that's translated as thing. In the Old Testament for the Hebrews, a word was a thing. It had an actual reality all, it, all its own. And when you let someone put into words what they're going through, you're letting them give it a, a reality that now they can examine and they can look at it and they can deal with. But if you keep going on with platitudes about how, oh, it'll all work out in the end and you'll get over it and, uh, and, and you know, stuff like that, then they never get the chance to put it into words. Just ask them what happened and then stand back and listen and don't start talking about what you've been through. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're going through, why I suffered the same thing two years ago, and I went through this and that and the other. This conversation is not about you. It's about the person who's grieving. Sit back and just listen and treasure 
the silence. You know, most of us don't like silence. But if you're talking to somebody and you say what happened and they just stare at you, you stare back. And you just wait for them. Because they're trying to find the energy to talk without breaking down. If they get through and they're halfway through the story and they stop and it's silent, keep listening. Treasure the silence. Because many times that's when the Holy Spirit is working in their heart and bringing to their mind the things they need to talk about. Just learn to be quiet. Avoid trying to fix it. You know, fix it in about two or three days later. Okay. This is hard for us guys. You know, for men, we, we think we've got to fix things right away. You got a problem? I can fix it. Just tell me what it is. No problem. I can fix it. In the reality, you can't. There are some problems that are unfixable in life. Just sit and listen. Listen to them. Listen to their heart. And then hug them. Appropriately. But hug them. Because they just need to know they're not alone. Paul said, weep with those who weep. Why? Because that's what God has done for us. He listened to our heartache and our sorrows. He's listened to us pour out our pain. He's listened to us when, like Job, we complain in the bitterness of our soul. God listens to us. Do you know how easy it would be for God to just say, wait a minute, buddy, I've got that covered. It's all over. Here's the answer. Get over it. No, God listens and he lets us grieve. Because he's a loving heavenly father. We need to learn how to listen the way God listens to us, with grace and mercy and kindness. And so those two things, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This week, just have your antenna up, and when you're talking to somebody, and they begin to talk about something that's really a cause of joy in their life, something they're excited about, I want you to just say, tell me about it. And then listen. And if you hear somebody and they, and they give you an indication, you know, something didn't work out so well, you know, instead of running for the hills, just pause and say, that sounds like you need to talk about it. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody, and, you know, just, just see them and say, how you doing? Okay. And I just stop and I say, it sounds to me like you had to think about it before it was okay. What's going on? Sometimes they want to talk about it. Sometimes they don't. And, and that's up to them. They, they get to run the conversation. But, but don't be afraid of someone unburdening a great sorrow in their life because you don't have to fix it. God does. They just need somebody to sit and listen to them. I want your antenna up to listen the way God listens, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep so that God would be glorified and honored in our lives. Let's bow in prayer together. And Father, how wonderful you are to give us the opportunity not to be your spokesman, but to be your listener for others. And Father, what a glorious opportunity it is when your grace and your Holy Spirit just gives us the, the ability, gives us words we didn't know how, and gives us the wisdom to be quiet and silent and listening. So, Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would just be poured out upon us, that we would have that courage of faith to trust you and indeed to rejoice and to weep as your Holy Spirit leads us. And, Father, I ask and pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.